Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello, friends. Here we are again. Another Friday and another Reporters Roundtable on the Bill Press Pod. Welcome. Most of the focus this week, of course, on Afghanistan. Campaigning for president, Joe Biden said he badly wanted to end the war in Afghanistan, and he just did, ended it badly. Uh, As we've seen in those gut-wrenching videos from the Kabul airport. But will Biden be remembered for the messy way he ended America's longest war, or the fact that out of four presidents who promised more or less to end the war, he's the first one to actually do so? What happens in Afghanistan now, and where do all those refugees go? Meanwhile, like Donald Trump, Texas Governor Greg Abbott downplayed the threat of COVID-19. But now, again, like Donald Trump, he's come down with the virus himself. Unlike Donald Trump, will he now change his ways? And domestic terrorism, again, raises its ugly face at the U.S. Capitol. Oh my, so much for today's panel to dissect. So let's get right into it with Lauren Burke, news writer for Black Press USA and host of the Burke File podcast. Hello, Lauren. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. Welcome back. David Jackson joining us, national political correspondent for USA Today. Hello, David. Hello, Bill. How are you? And Matt Gertz, senior fellow for Media Matters for America. Again, welcome back to you, Matt. Hey, Bill. Good to be back. So let's jump right into Afghanistan. It was about a month ago in the East Room of the White House when President Biden laid out his plans for uh, ending the war in Afghanistan that Steve Holland from Reuters popped in with this important question. Is a Taliban takeover of Afghanistan now inevitable? No, it is not. David Jackson, longtime White House reporter. What happened between then and now? Well, we're still trying to find that out, but apparently a lot of people in the government knew or suspected that the Taliban was ready to sweep back across the country, and it just didn't seem to affect the planning or lack of planning from the White House. So it's, uh, I mean, Biden was just wrong when he said that, and apparently he was caught by surprise, and even if he wasn't, there were some a lot of other people in his government who weren't particularly surprised, but just decided that they they needed to go ahead and and, uh, effectuate the pullout. Uh, so uh, who was he ca- uh, depending on, Lauren? Do we know uh, coming to that conclusion? Uh, you know, it's hard to tell. I mean, I do think that um, he is kind of saddled with a situation that, of course, swept through uh, three presidents in 20 years. He just happens to be the president that ended the war. Uh, but, you know, in listening to John Sopko, who's the special inspector general for Afghanistan, uh his conclusions that we set up as a country, unrealistic timelines in Afghanistan and no strategy and didn't understand the culture in Afghanistan, this was inevitably going to happen. And it did happen. Uh, now, uh, I don't know that we could 
name easily uh, situations before where we've exited the country smoothly. <laughs> so it's not as if actually yeah. a complete surprise, but but at the same time, you know, in the information age that we live in, the media age we live in, where everything understands that you're going to ha- see these images, that's going to happen, and and it's going to look embarrassing. There should have been a lot more thought given to what was going to happen. I also think too that. Ultimately, the reason we went into Afghanistan, of course, was 9-11 and, and trying to hunt down Osama bin Laden. And to me, the death of Osama bin Laden on May 2nd, 2011, should have probably been the end of this war. But the mission creep and the obvious, you know, oh, we're nation building one year and then we're doing something different the next year. And then we have people testifying, saying we're turning the corner, we're not turning the corner another year. That was obviously problematic and all comes down to the head of Joe Biden. And uh, that's hard to watch because, of course, he was on the Foreign Policy Committee in the Senate. He is a foreign policy, you know, heavy president. And so this is ironic that this is really the first uh, big problem and big Mm -hmm. sort of mistake of his presidency. Yeah. And and Matt, um, in terms of sources, um, some of the reporting that I've done, uh, there were, as Dave Jackson uh, indicated, some voices inside the administration, inside uh, our intelligence community who did say the Taliban's a lot stronger than we think, uh, you know, they could really move in here pretty fast and we better start getting our people out. But the military uh, were saying just the opposite. And Mark Milley, uh, the head of the Joint Chiefs, just a couple of days ago at the Pentagon said they didn't have a clue. Here he is. Let me make one comment on the intelligence because I'm seeing all over the news that there are warnings of a rapid collapse. The time frame of a rapid collapse, that was widely estimated and ranged from weeks to months and even years following our departure. There was nothing that I or anyone else saw that indicated a collapse of this army and this government in 11 days. Isn't that kind of hard to believe, Matt? Not a clue? I, I don't know if I'd go that far. I mean, even the reporting that we've seen thus far, or the reporting that I've seen uh, from the Wall Street Journal most recently about uh, the, the sort of uh, State Department uh, uh, missive saying that the uh, government could fall, didn't have it falling before we finished leaving. That was a, it could happen soon after mm-hmm. the August uh, 31st pullout. Uh, so it does seem to have happened at a much faster rate than anyone anticipated. Now, perhaps uh it should have been anticipated that that would happen faster. Certainly, we appear to have spent 20 years building a government in Afghanistan that lacked the legit- uh, legitimacy among its populace uh, and a military that couldn't fight on its own. Um, but uh, it does not seem to have been uh, considered a plausible conclusion that before we finished leaving, the Taliban would take the entire country. Yeah. Um... <laughs> After 20 years, shouldn't we have had a clue, Lauren, maybe a little earlier that the Afghan military wasn't really uh, up to this job? Uh, Yeah, we definitely should have had a clue. But, you know, we do have people testifying over that 20 years saying that we were doing okay, and again, turning the corner. So I I don't understand how it is that we did not, uh, that some administration didn't figure out that this ultimately was not going to work. But, you know, I think that foreign policy generally is on the back burner of most of the minds of, uh, of Americans in general and sometimes presidents in general. Obviously, the previous president, Donald Trump, would not have had a clue of what to do, I think, in this situation either. So that was four years, you know, wasted right there. 
But I, you know, I, I think that at some point you can't stay forever. <laughs> you know, I mm. mean, you can only, yeah. we all, what did we do? 14 billion or 20 billion? I've seen different estimates of how much we spent on this. Two trillion. Some, yeah. <laughs> well, that's, that's way higher than what I've seen. And I believe it. I'm sure it is two trillion. Um, I think that, um, you know, it, it had to end at some point and it unfortunately ended on Biden in a way that looks uh, extremely unorg- you know, disorganized and um, not what a professional administration should put forward when it comes to foreign policy. So, David, uh, the president knew uh, this was not going well. He left Camp David. I've never seen this before. Came back to the White House just to give a speech and then went back to Camp David. <laughs> and, and he has stood by his decision. Here he is. I made a commitment to the American people that I would bring America's military involvement in Afghanistan to an end. I've honored that commitment. The truth is, this did unfold more quickly than we had anticipated. So what's happened? Afghanistan political leaders gave up and fled the country. The Afghan military collapsed. If anything, the developments of the past week reinforced that ending U.S. military involvement in Afghanistan now was the right decision. American troops cannot and should not be fighting in a war and dying in a war that Afghan forces are not willing to fight for themselves. David, that last argument that we should not be uh, fighting uh, to defend a country when the, the, the residents of that country, the military, won't fight to defend themselves is a pretty strong one. Is that a, will that end up being the winning argument for Biden? Certainly he thinks so, and he believes the voters will, will do so, and he, he probably has some uh, hope of success with that. Just remember, we have, we have not lost an American during this botched operation here over the past week, so I think that's important to say mm-hmm. as we sit here on August 20th, and if that remains the case, uh, he's, he's going to be able to make a, make a much stronger argument. But uh, it's, to me, it's, this is a vicious circle. Remember, a, a lot of the Taliban advance started after a leak of intelligence here in the United States saying that the government in Afghanistan was very weak and very vulnerable to a Taliban takeover. And that seemed to inspire the Taliban. And and there's also evidence that uh, the Afghan government uh, just basically gave up after that. They felt like they were going to be abandoned by the U.S. We had a lot of security officials in Afghanistan, security officials who went ahead and just joined the Taliban when they showed up in their towns. Yeah. And so it's basically uh, the U.S. expressed a lack of a lack of confidence in the Afghanistan government. The Afghans felt like they were being abandoned. Some of them joined the Taliban. The Taliban took advantage of all this and swept through the country in 11 days. So it's it's uh, it's, it's a very bad situation. And, and the president's strategy is obviously not to answer the question of that, about how flawed the uh, withdrawal operation was. He's just going to say, hey, we pulled out of Afghanistan. This is what we said we would do. This is what we've done. And that's going to be, his, I'm pretty sure that's going to be his argument going forward. From a media matters point of view, Matt, has the media collectively paid too much attention to the chaos at the airport and not enough attention to the fact that this war is over, the longest war is over? I mean, I think certainly the bulk of the coverage has not focused on the broader context of the U.S. occupation of Afghanistan over the last two decades. Uh, Coverage more or less dried up uh, on you know the the cables and broadcast coverage over the last several years, there there basically has been very little attention paid uh, to what was happening there. And now I, I think you have a scenario where uh, 
Biden has broken with a bipartisan national security consensus that wraps up uh, you know, the diplomatic and military and intelligence community view that we should remain in Afghanistan indefinitely. Uh, he did not believe that we should do so. Um, and now, uh, you know, virtually all of the sources that journalists tend to rely on for stories like this, uh, you know, are current and former members of the diplomatic and intelligence and military communities who are all deeply implicated by U.S. failures in Afghanistan over the last two decades. And those are the people that uh, you see on television all the time, people like Leon Panetta and David Petraeus, who for years said that things were improving, that the military was going to be able to stand on its own feet over there, um, that we were doing a great job of, of building a government uh, in Afghanistan, uh, are the ones that reporters go to and the American people hear from uh, now that that policy uh, is no longer in place. Yeah. Uh, and of course, uh, Lauren, the um, Taliban says, uh, we're different this time around. <laughs> we we are the we are the kinder, gentler <laughs> Taliban. We're going to respect the rights of women, respect the right of dissent, respect the right of the media to say whatever they want. Um, hello, <laughs> right? <laughs> I tend to doubt that. I mean, we're all already seeing videos of uh, members of the Taliban jumping off the back of trucks to get people's, uh, you know, flag that, uh, that represents the government <laughs> and take it away from them. So obviously only time will tell with that question, but there's no real uh, historic reason that I know of to think that they're the kinder, gentler Taliban, you know. Um, I, so I, I think that that's going to probably be something that we will be revisiting and and probably will be laid on the shoulders of President Biden when when that starts to go south and we see more video that that evidence is that they're not the kinder, gentle, gentler Taliban. Um, but, you know, ultimately, I, I do think that, you know, given the way our media cycles work and given the fact that Biden did say he was going to get out of, he did, in fact, say repeatedly he was going to get out of Afghanistan, that ultimately, um, you know, it, it's sort of, I, I think time is on his side. I'll say that. Mm -hmm. I don't know that anybody's going to cast a vote, you know, four years from now based on this, on what we're seeing over the last week. Yeah. Uh, so, David, I've also been interested, not to spend too much time on Afghanistan, but it has been dominating the news, interested in the um, Republican Party's uh, response to this. Of course, they see a weakness in Joe Biden, and so they're going to leap. That's 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 what makes ballgames. But uh, it's it's been one one attack is saying, uh, look, Donald Trump, this would never have happened under Donald Trump. Donald Trump had a deal with the Taliban, yes, and he puts tough conditions on the Taliban, and he would never have let this happen. Any truth in that? No. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, if it was up to Trump, we'd have pulled out overnight back, you know, back last year sometime. And he, I, I just don't think they're claiming they had uh, plans to withdraw our embassy staff and Afghans who'd helped us. And, and I, I certainly don't believe the second part. And I don't think they had written any plan or really any, any conception of the challenges involved in to a total withdrawal from the country. So suffice to say, if, if Trump were president, the same thing would be happening and the political dynamic would be totally different. But uh, having said that, you may, you're obviously right. The Republicans see a great opportunity here. And one of yeah. the things that I hear a lot of Republicans saying is say, hey, look, you know, 
for all of Trump's faults, you know, he, he wasn't any worse than Biden is. Look at the way Biden is screwing this up. And they're basically mm-hmm. using it to, to try to, quote, normalize and quote Trump. And I, I think that's going to be a challenge going forward. Well, you know, I keep I've been probing, looking for these so-called conditions that were on that deal that Pompeo made with the head of the Taliban. Remember, zero, zero, uh, zero. Exactly. Um, uh, the Taliban promised that they would be different this time around. Right. It's the same promise they're right. making today. That was the only condition I right. could find. And by the way, let's remember also Donald Trump. Uh, his first plan was to invite the Taliban to Camp David. Right. For peace talks. Right. Because right. he wanted that. He wanted that photo op. But, uh, so, I, you know, go ahead. I, I do think one other scenario that we could have seen here is Donald Trump getting completely rolled by the military uh, and, and not uh, going through with the pullout. Like, that's not right. beyond the realm of possibility. It's something that happened to him repeatedly throughout his administration. Well, I think that's quite he, likely. I think the, the military did push back on his hopes for Afghanistan. And one of the things I'm wondering now is why they didn't push back on Biden. But mm-hmm. we won't know that for years. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Matt, let me stick with you for a second, because the other approach that Republicans have taken is um, so they're they're complaining about and attacking Biden for the messy withdrawal, let's say, at the airport. They didn't have a plan in place. But at the same time, there are some leading Republicans who are saying uh, uh, we don't want these refugees in the first place. Right. Don't. <laughs> yeah. Get the refugees out. But whatever you do, don't send them here. <laughs> uh, here we go. Uh, here's a little medley. Tucker Carlson and Laura Ingram on Fox. If history is any guide and it's always a guide, we will see many refugees from Afghanistan resettle in our country in coming months, probably in your neighborhood. And over the next decade, that number may swell to the millions. So first we invade and then we're invaded. And is it really our responsibility to welcome thousands of potentially unvetted refugees from Afghanistan? All day, we've heard phrases like, we promised them. Well, who did? Did you? Ha did you? <laughs> ha, Matt, what's the message here? <laughs> yeah, so this is interesting. This is the schism that you see in the Republican Party and the right-wing media. Uh, Carlson and Ingram are both people who... Uh, supported uh, Trump pulling troops out of Afghanistan and even uh, expressed some support for Biden continuing to do so earlier this year. But as soon as he actually did it, it's not like they suddenly started praising him for following through. They pivoted immediately to uh, you know, saying that he was trying to import uh, dirty brown foreigners to uh, <laughs> replace uh, good-hearted American people. Um, that is, I think, uh, the split that exists between the Republican Party, where you have uh, hawks that are relatively reasonable on immigration issues, uh, but you all and you have a more dovish uh, uh, chunk of the party that's also sort of uh, raging uh, ethno nationalists. Um, and I, I think that that the, the ethno nationalist side is where I think the strength is on uh, in the Republican Party, and I, I think you'll see a lot more uh, energy from the right pushing back on the idea of uh, bringing over refugees, even if they uh, helped uh, U.S. forces in Afghanistan over the last twenty years. Yeah. Uh, so, Lauren, uh, or any of you, wh- where where are the American people on all of this? Do they give a shit about Afghanistan? I suspect not, actually, particularly in the uh, with the backdrop being COVID and sort of a 
you know, we, we keep seeing these stories about people, uh, you know, disengaging uh, from their employment and rethinking their lives because of COVID. And so there's a lot going on right at this particular moment in American life. Uh, and I don't know that foreign policy, you know, when you do polls you know, right before elections and ask people what they care about, it's always the same things, education, healthcare, jobs. Typically, foreign policy does not make that, you know, the top of the list. So it's, uh, I suspect the answer to your question is no. What do you think, David? I agree. And obviously, the Biden administration is counting on it. I think as long as there are no Americans who are killed in this withdrawal operation, mm-hmm. I think that the chaos and chaotic images will fade. And I don't, I don't think it will be much of an election issue. Uh, now, of course, there is one solution to those poor people who are... Um, uh, you know, going through such efforts to try to get out of Afghanistan. Uh, and of all people, it was Sean Hannity who came up with the uh, magic solution to maybe to help them sleep at night. Uh, here, Matt Gertz, is uh, Sean Hannity uh, on his radio show. How would you like to be in Kabul today as an American and you can't get to the airport? Where are you thinking your life is headed? You're one of those family members. I bet you're not sleeping. I, I don't even think my pillow can do it. MyPillow.com, that's where I go. I fall asleep faster. I stay asleep longer. These are going to be a lot of sleepless nights for so many of our fellow Americans. you got to get them home. <laughs> all right, Matt. MyPillow.com, that's it. That's the answer. Give them all a, give them all a pillow. Send Mike Lindell over there. <laughs> that was a, a truly bizarre uh, situation. He wasn't even the only time this week he did something like that. There, there was a... Uh, a sort of, I guess, pivot to advertising thing earlier in the week where he said, there's a stampede not only out of Afghanistan, but a stampede away from high prices, overpriced service from the big carriers like Verizon, AT&T, and T-Mobile, the average family making the switch to pure talk. I don't know. That's uh, that's some dark stuff. I thought it was a Saturday Night Live skit. Well... (laughs) You know what? <laughs> it would make a great set and probably yeah. probably will tomorrow night, right? <laughs> if they're back. No, I guess they're right. not. No, they're not back till like, October. But yeah, it wouldn't shock me if it came back up then. <laughs> All right. So Mike Lindell to the rescue. There we go. All right. Enough on Afghanistan. Let's take a quick break and get back to some of the other news of the week here. With today's panelists on the roundtable, Lauren Burke from Black Press USA, David Jackson, USA Today, and Matt Gertz from Media Matters for America. And today's podcast, today's roundtable, brought to you by the Smart Union, the good men and women of the Smart Union. They were formerly sheet metal workers, airline workers, railway and transportation workers. They all got together, forming one union, the Smart Union, under the leadership of President Joseph Sellers, still out there building America and keeping America moving. We salute the members of the Smart Union, thank them for their support of the Bill Press Pod, direct you to their website at smart-union, smart-union.org. Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. 
grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Back on the Bill Press Pod this Friday, August 20, with our our panelists on the roundtable. Matt Gertz joining us, senior fellow from Media Matters for America. David Jackson, national political correspondent for USA Today. Lauren Burke, news writer for Black Press USA and host of the Burke File podcast. I I mentioned this is August 20. Oh, my God, Lauren Burke, uh, this is a week after... Donald Trump was supposed to be back in the White House. Right. Uh, and what happened? <laughs> oh, nothing happened because, of course, it's all <laughs> fantasy land, you know. Uh, so that, that big lie uh, component, of course, didn't happen and really was just the subject of a lot of uh, jokes on Twitter, <laughs> you know. Uh, but it is sort of, you know, it, it's kind of funny, not funny, you know, because I, there's so many people, obviously, who believe it. Uh, and there was a blockbuster piece in the New Yorker by Jane Mayer on the money behind the big lie uh, yeah. that came out last week that was unbelievable. And, and so, yeah, obviously Donald Trump did not become president again or, or take over again or whatever we want to call it. But it's it's certainly something that, you know, again, is dangerous because so many people believe he should actually be in office. Uh, I guess Sidney Powell... Uh... Her, her reputation suffered maybe a little bit, David Jackson. No, I, a lot <laughs> of people's Rudy's. There's a, there's a bunch of lawyers who are in trouble based on the right. big lies. So. Well, let's but, talk about something that is not fantasy land, and that is COVID-19, particularly because of the Delta variant. Um, we've certainly found that out in Texas, where Governor Greg Abbott, uh, not a big fan of masks or social distancing, defying the CDC guidelines, he had been double vaccinated. He still came down with COVID. David Jackson, um, is this going to cause any change of heart with uh, Greg Abbott's approach to the coronavirus? No, I doubt it. I doubt it. You know, he, he's being challenged from the right, believe it or not. Some people in Texas don't think Greg Abbott is conservative enough. So there are two, there's our, you know, our old friend uh, West, uh, Colonel West, Alan West, the uh, former congressman from Florida who's now in Texas. He's challenging Abbott and there's a former state legislator named Don Huffines who's also challenging him. So, and, and there's evidence that Abbott is somewhat paranoid about these challenges. So he's going to follow the uh, extremely conservative view on COVID right down the line, and that includes being anti-mask. I, I don't think he's going to change his mind at all. I mean, one thing about Abbott, and it's kind of it's maybe an oddball thing. You know, he's he's had the spinal injury. He's he's in a wheelchair, and he's already exceeded the life expectancy of people who are, who are in his condition. 
And I'm wondering about his health. And I'm wondering if this if this latest bout with COVID is going to deteriorate his health further and, and put his his own, you know, put his campaign in jeopardy. That's what I'm looking for out of this story. Well, I've seen some reports uh, that particularly because of the, the health problems that you mentioned, that he's particularly vulnerable to us. To a serious case of COVID nineteen, right? And he's and he's taking medication for it, even though he's supposedly asymptomatic. So yeah, I mean, I think that I think this is going to create a lot of questions about his health, and it'll be interesting to see if they enter the political arena. Uh, and of course, uh, right alongside of him, in terms of Republican governors, is Ron DeSantis of Florida, who's getting a lot of blowback from school districts. But DeSantis uh, again is holding the line, refusing to budge. Here's his latest. Politicians want to force you to cover your face as a way for them to cover their own asses. Even though it doesn't, it's not, it's not proven to be effective. Even though masks have not proven to be effective. Matt Gertz, uh, uh, I guess DeSantis is the governor, right? He's not going to budge. Yeah, I mean, I think this has been become a or became a culture war issue uh, early last year in the early days of the pandemic. And there's no sign that it's going away. Uh, Ron DeSantis wants to be president. And the way to uh, become the Republican nominee, they all seem to think, is not to uh, do the best job of keeping your constituents alive during the pandemic, but in sticking it to the libs. Uh, by rejecting, uh, you know, as much of the uh, ways that, that, that people have come up with to try to reduce the spread of the virus as possible, um, mm. there's no sign of that coming to an end uh, as the body count continues to rise. Um, I, I think it should really be a cautionary tale for people uh, in, in other parts of the country that have not seen as big of a Delta spike yet, but that could see it in the future to get as many of their constituents vaccinated as possible before it gets there, because the, the virus is not going away, even if uh, you know Republicans uh, pretend that it will for political advantage. Advantage. For some reason, the Republican Party thinks that it's a workable strategy to just simply do the opposite of what the Democrats are doing, no matter how incoherent and illogical that may be. And so how we found ourselves making COVID a political moment, I have no idea. But I actually think DeSantis' strategy, of course, is a really good uh, example of what this Republican Party does globally, which is simply just take the opposite position mm -hmm. of the other party f for no reason other than to take the opposite position. And I think for this, it's a disaster, which is well, why his poll numbers are tanking. Right. Well, it must be said, uh, David Jackson, there are s some Republican governors, Larry Hogan of Maryland, uh, Mike DeWine of Ohio, Kay Ivey, even down in Alabama, uh, who are, and uh, Asa Hutchinson in, in Arkansas said he's sorry that he did the lifted the mask mandate, right, um, so who, who are just following the CDC guidelines. Uh, so I, I don't know. I sometimes get the feeling that the, the public mood is shifting against those who refuse to get vaccinated because they're putting all the rest of us at risk. It, well, I think I, it is among the general population, but I'm not among the Republican base. You know, you mentioned yeah. Asa Hutchinson. He's taking all kind of heat from the right wing and oh, yeah. over his change in Arkansas. Now, he's not running for re-election, so it doesn't matter. Sanders is running for re-election. And it seems to me, and, and I'm, 
it seems to me that he's he's got so much invested in his COVID strategy. You know, he did some different things last year and feels like they were successful. I think he feels like he's got to stick with it, and it's, it's an awfully big risk. Uh, so I want to, uh, to conclude by uh, something that those of us who live in Washington were a little shaken up by again yesterday when uh, this man from North Carolina showed up in his pickup truck, parked it on the sidewalk in front of the Library of Congress, and uh, told the police that he had a bomb in the truck that uh, he was going to detonate if anybody uh, messed with, with him, and then started uh, rambling with a whole screed of anti-government, anti-Biden comments. Um, again, our law enforcement officers were on the job. It took them a long time. They finally talked the guy uh, into um, uh, getting out of his, his truck and surrendering. Uh, what does this tell us, Matt, about um, the Capitol uh, as a target of political violence ever since January 6th? I mean, I think it's that the threat isn't going away anytime soon. You have a giant right-wing megaphone bombarding the Republican base with messages about how uh, the election was stolen from President Trump, that Joe Biden is an illegitimate president, that he's trying to import brown people to replace them. Uh, and you know, eventually, you have some people crack under that. Um, there's no sign that any of that will abate anytime soon. Uh, and so I, I don't think that there's a reason to believe that we won't continue to see uh, actions like this. And, and you know, hopefully uh, they, they end up unsuccessful uh, the way this one did. Yeah. Uh, but Lauren, it has really changed the whole mood, I think, around the Capitol. Look, I live on the Hill, right? I walk down by the Capitol almost every day to walk down the mall. Uh, and it used to be just this great park where there were tourists and Americans coming to see their capital. Now the people who work there are in fear every day. Uh, yeah. And I used to be one of the people who work there. And the attitude is completely different in my view. I was actually surprised that they did not fence off the Capitol after it was attacked on Jan January 6th. And I remember the you know, former chief uh, Terrence Gaynor wanted to do just that. He wanted to make it sort of like what the White House is now. Well, they and did for a while, of course, and right, finally took right. the fence down. Exactly yeah. right. In fact, they just took it down, um, what, two weeks ago, wasn't that long ago. And uh, I suspect that they would because it has always been considered by the leadership that's there now, whether it be Senator McConnell or Leader Pelosi as, you know, the people's place to visit. Uh, and as somebody who, you know, my boyfriend is a Capitol Hill police officer and has been there for 20 years, uh, you know, it's always a tense time to be hearing that, you know, somebody is pulled up with a bomb, which is not a, you know, unfortunately not a rare occurrence. And it wasn't a rare occurrence before January 6th. But now it has a completely different uh, feel because you, you, you get the sense that there is a building, obviously a building tension and so many of the friends I have up there now, when they talk about the special protocols they have uh, for some sort of an emergency uh, happening, I'm, I'm actually shocked, actually, that they have those protocols, even knowing the danger of working up there. But I do think it, you know, it's something that uh, uh, they do have a new police chief, Tom Manger, and I think yesterday was the first test for him. And Mm -hmm. I, I do think that I, I'm kind of surprised, frankly, that this guy, Floyd Ray Roseberry, walked away alive, to be honest with you. I, uh, <laughs> yeah, I come from probably. a law enforcement family from New York, and, and somebody pulling up and announcing that they're going to blow the place up, 
you know, six, seven months after the building was attacked. I'm surprised that he walked away from that. Uh, so, David, this is the new reality after January right. 6th, isn't it? Very much so. And uh, I just remember after, right after January 6th and during the second impeachment trial, I was talking to people, including Republicans who were fairly pro-Trump, who said their biggest fear was political violence. And that hasn't changed. I mean, the incident with this truck driver was, was not surprising to me or to a lot of other people. And I very much fear that uh, someone's going to try something similar again and, and possibly succeed. And I, I, I do fear with the congressional elections coming up and the presidential election after that, we could we could well see a spate of political violence in this country. Well, as a resident of Capitol Hill, I hope they're able to work it out without making Capitol Hill any more of a uh, an armed fortress. Well, unfortunately, it. it's, it's the primary target because of what happened yeah. January 6th. So exactly. Uh, yeah. yeah. So I hope they can uh, protect it without making, as I say, the Hill any more of an armed fortress than it already is. Uh, so um, I'm sure there are some issues this week that we left off the table. But in the interest of time, uh, let's move on to our favorite stories of the week. Thank you. Um, thank you, panelists, David Jackson, Matt Gertz, and Lauren Burke for a good roundup of the week's big news. We always uh, ask you, uh, what is the one story during the week that really caught your attention and stopped you in your tracks, at least for a few seconds to think about? Oh, my, how about that one? Uh, we call it our favorite story of the week. Um, Matt Gertz, you want to start us off? So this is usually where I talk about my favorite media conspiracy, which is that the Democratic <laughs> Socialists of America have infiltrated the real estate sections yes. of the New York Times and Wall Street Journal uh, and are using their reporting on yes. the uber wealthy to uh, overthrow uh, capitalism. However, uh, this week, uh, the New York Times' real estate section has done a great package on uh, black homeownership in New York. Um, with uh, a series of articles about racial covenants in deeds, about uh, what gentrification means for black homeowners, uh, a sort of backstory on mm -hmm. redlining. It's a really well put together package. And so excellent. Excellent. Uh, I, I don't know if uh, the authors are, are also uh, socialists trying to overthrow the government. <laughs> but that said, uh, it, it's, it's a wonderful package and I recommend it. Uh, I, I've, I've been reading it and it, you're, you're right. Excellent package. Uh, how about you, Lauren Burke? Yes, my my favorite story. I just caught up to it this week. It actually came out on August second. I had That's previously all right. mentioned it, um, but I previously mentioned the Jane Mayer piece in the New Yorker on yes. the money behind the big lie, and the money behind the big lie is a very long story, as New Yorker pieces tend to be. But fortunately for me, I have the app Autumn that reads you the story, so I actually <laughs> listened to the entire story. And I just found it to be, I mean, I find most of what Jane Mayer does incredible, but this particular story, which I thought I was going to read and, or listen to and, and mm. say to myself, well, I've heard this all before. I had not heard before. And so that to me is that that's my pick. Uh, voting rights is going to be huge coming up in this next election. And that story was incredible. And I highly recommend it. It was scary, man. It was really scary. <laughs> it was. It <laughs> You're was. right. Kudos again to Jane Mayer. I agree with you on everything she does. How about David Jackson? Well, I'm going to go a little bit light here. Uh, it's uh, from a college football website called On3, and it's a story by Ivan Mizell, who's our finest college football writer. And it's about the childhood friendship between Nick Saban, who's the head coach at the University of Alabama, yeah. and probably the most successful college football coach in history, and Joe Manchin. Whoa. They grew up within four miles of each other in West Virginia. They were both prep uh, 
football athletic stars. And so they, they met each other way back then in high school and have kept up with each other. And the, the story went through their whole lives and how they've managed to inspire each other to some pretty interesting positions in American life. And it was just a, a, a good and entertaining reminder that we live in a small world. Hey, you want to hear about small worlds? Ivan Maisel uh, is my parents' neighbor uh, <laughs> in, in the, the house that I grew up with uh, in Fairfield, Connecticut. He's, oh, that's his family, they're, they're great people. Oh, Ivan Mizell is a terrific college football writer. He has a book coming out in October about the death of his son. So he's going yeah, to no, be hearing a lot very, about it. Very sad story. Right, right. Oh, my. There you go. All right. Thank you, David. Well, as a uh, Californian and a former chair of the California Democratic Party, uh, my favorite story is watching the California recall. Uh, mm-hmm. It is up on September. It's up on September 14. Um, Gavin Newsom was able to persuade uh, uh, any to, to keep prevent any big name Democrat from filing. So there's just a whole gang of about 40 or 50 Republicans uh, and no leading Republican uh, for a while. Uh, they thought Caitlyn Jenner was going to be the lead. And then she went off to do a reality show in Australia instead. Uh, John Cox, who lost to Gavin Newsom uh, three years ago, is running around the state in a bus with a trained bear, actually, uh, as part of his campaign. So then they thought, oh, here comes Larry Elder, the talk show host. He's going to be the our Republican candidate. Uh, well, CNN reported this week, they went back to some of the things that Larry Elder has said, uh, including the fact he said that women exaggerate the significance of sexism, blacks exaggerate the significance of racism, Medicare should be abolished. He laid out two rules on how to be a good wife. Have dinner ready when your husband gets home and don't complain. And that the women who marched in the Women's March in Washington were too unattractive to be sexually assaulted. So suddenly, Larry Elder is not such a (laughs) a promising candidate anymore. So I want to suggest, again, Lauren, thanks to The New Yorker this week, that profiles Angeline she is a she's one of the um, Republican candidates who filed. Uh, she is a self-described professional celebrity uh, who has big billboards all over LA where she is scantily clad in a pink outfit. And her platform includes a UFO conference, an annual policeman's ball, mandatory bubble bath day, and canceling daylight savings time and jury duty. Now, to me, that sounds like a winning platform. <laughs> uh, but don't don't count Angeline out. Uh, she also ran against Gray Davis back in 2003. And her slogan, get this, was, we've had gray and brown. Why not blonde and pink? There you and, go. And Angeline came in number 29 out of 135 candidates back in 2003. So she could be the one to watch uh, in the California. Let's watch out, Larry. <laughs> watch out, Larry Elder. Angeline is on the rise here. So there you go. Uh, that's it for today's podcast. Again, thanks so much to our panelists, David Jackson, USA Today, Matt Gertz, Media Matters for America, Lauren Burke, Black Press USA, and host of the Burke File, Pro- Burke File Podcast. Sorry. And that's it for today. We'll be back on next week, beginning of next week, talking to Bill Crystal, 
a very leading Republican never-Trumper. And we want to ask Bill Crystal, among other things, where the Republican Party goes from here, looking at 2022 and 2024. That'll be uh, next Tuesday on the Bill Press Pod. In the meantime, have a great weekend. Take care of yourself. Stay strong. Stay safe. Wear that mask. Practice your social distancing. And we'll see you on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader, too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.